between the years of 1999 and 2006, the world saw a dominating performance in sports. Now, in the United States, cycling wasn't very popular. But in Europe, the Tour de France was a premier event. Lance Armstrong had become a household name. He rose to fame and rose to prominence with seven straight Tour de France titles. Was it possible that someone could be so dominant in the sport? After allegations that were uncorroborated at first of drug use, it seemed that it was true. But in reality, it would later be revealed that Mr. Armstrong did indeed take performance-enhancing drugs. And what we saw before us was the rise of an athlete to prominence, and we saw quickly the downfall of that athlete. Today, as we take a look at the scriptures in Samuel, we have been reading over the past couple chapters and past couple weeks of, of the rise of Saul into kingship over Israel. And today, we're going to take a look at the demise and the downfall. Like, like a snowball at the top of the hill, it's slowly going to be rolling down the hill and it's going to be gaining speed and momentum and tracking. And we're going to follow that here today. Now, I want to start by thanking Pastor Jeff, who today gave me 97 verses to preach on. That's right, 97 verses. To be fair, though, this passage has so much drama to it. There is deception. There is violence. There is lying. There is attempted murder. There is spiritual moments. There's an escape. There is profanity. There is heartbreak. This story right here, if you follow along and can picture everything that's going on, is going to be better than anything you see on Netflix tonight. Let's pray. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us your word today? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's start detailing the narrative. And Ashley just read from chapter 18. Chapter 18 picks up immediately after David and Goliath, the encounter of David and Goliath. In fact, I'm just kind of picturing David still having Goliath's head in his hand. He has a conversation with Saul and Abner, and then all of a sudden, Jonathan steps in to this picture. Jonathan, whom we read about, was a warrior in previous chapters in Samuel. We, we tell about, and, and the narrative tells about how successful he was. Now, he embraces David, and he has a tremendous amount of affection for him. And now we're looking at, at the fact that David is, was someone who wasn't even old enough to join the army. He's now a proven warrior. And Jonathan immediately takes off his robe and gives it to him and gives him his armor and gives him his sword and shield and treats him with dignity, respect, and love. The scene shifts <clears throat> And if you have your Bible, you'll, you'll note that the scene shifts here to, to David going into battle. And verse 5 and verse 14 and verse 30 tell you 
a recurring theme of what happens. David is successful. It's like these mileage markers on a trail. As we go through this chapter, we see verse 5, David is successful. Verse 14, David is successful. Wow, David's really kicking tail. Verse 30, David is successful. Wow, David is rad. But the story doesn't spend a lot of time detailing David's battle, but instead turns to reveal what's going on with Saul. Saul and his relationship with David, and it's starting to show the demise of Saul, and it starts in verse 7. Up until that point, they're on really great terms, and, and upon returning home from battle, it would be customary for, for, for the young girls to greet their warriors with song as they came back. And on this occasion, they start singing a song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And in verse 8, we read, this bent Saul. This jealousy, this envy bent him in a bad way toward David, and this would frame the actions of the next three chapters. As we work our way through the narrative, let's pick it up in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So Saul offers his daughter, not in love, right, for David, but in exchange for fighting. Verse 17, the word valiant, or, or in other translations, warrior, literally means a man of strength. And so the picture here is that David is going to be sent into situations with crazy odds against him. Kind of picture a special ops where a handful of people are going into a camp and the odds are like 20 or 30 to 1. This is the kind of mission that Saul wants to send David on with the expectation he doesn't want David to come back alive. Verse 18, and David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? Translation, we're poor nobodies. How can I be married to the king? He doesn't even address the question. He is looking at his own humble upbringing and his own, and his own humble circumstance. Verse 19, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholthalite, for a wife. And the inference from the previous verse is Adriel was actually a man of wealth and had standing in the community. And so Saul gives his daughter away that he promised to David to somebody else. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and it pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be now be my son-in-law. So, so Saul says, wait, 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 I actually have a daughter that likes David? Wow, I'm going to use this to my advantage and I'm going to use her as bait to set up a trap for him. 
Saul wants to use this royal family member as another way to get him into battle, into these crazy situations, so David can be killed in battle, and Saul's problems go away. Verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David, David speak. So Saul is keenly aware that he may not have a lot of trust with David, and so he sends people in his court to talk and to do a little bit of gossip and to sweet-talk David into marrying his daughter in exchange for going into battle into these crazy situations where he is severely outnumbered. David, though, responds innocently just like before a humble man saying, I'm really of no promise. I'm a nobody. 25, Saul sees this as an opportunity. Verse 25, then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of his king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He sees this as an opportunity. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal loved, Saul's daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Summary of this chapter. Saul deceptively offers his daughters in marriage because he secretly wants to see David killed in battle. David acts with pure motives, while Saul uses means of deception and cunning to try to accomplish his plan. These plans, however, however, backfire, and David continues to rise in the eyes of the nation. This is high drama in the story. Let's continue with verse and chapter 19. Jonathan re-enters the picture. It becomes known that Saul is trying to kill David. You can't quite keep this a secret, right? Because he's sharing with other people to conspire. So Jonathan alerts David and says, I'm going to speak to my dad. We pick this up in chapter 19, verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin... Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Then, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. 
Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported all these things to him, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan lays out the facts before King Saul and says, Dad, you are nuts. David hasn't done anything against you. In fact, everything he has done has benefited you and Israel. Why would you want to do this? And King Saul, in a moment of reprieve, realizes, yeah, my son's right. He is crazy. And he swears in the name of the Lord that David will not be put to death. David comes back into the king's graces and all is well. And they live happily ever after. Absolutely not. <laughs> one verse later, one verse later, in verse 8, we pick it up. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house and his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. David, again, is successful in battle, and we see how this jealousy is tormenting Saul, and this jealousy is the root of his demise. And you see it like this snowball rolling faster and faster and gaining more steam as it goes down the hill. Here's the acceleration of his jealousy. Verse 11. Now, Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him. So I'm just picturing this where, where, where people are standing and watching outside his house that, that he might kill him in the morning. But Mahel, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Mahel, David, so Mahel let David down through the window, that, and he fled away and escaped. Then Mahel took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with his clothes. This image is an idol. It's a life-size idol. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at his head. Even Saul's daughter sees the injustice of what's happening and helps David escape. And she uses an idol, which is a whole other sermon altogether, a life-size idol from their house, puts it in the bed to cover and that allows David more time to escape. Verse 18, I'm going to summarize a little bit of this section here. Verse 18, David escapes. And instead of going south to Bethlehem where his family was, Saul, um, and, and possibly where Saul might look for him, he ends up going north. He ends up going north to Ramah where Samuel the prophet lives. And from Ramah, he and Samuel go off to an even more remote place, uh, a more remote place, um, um, the place is Nahath in Ramah, and this, this place, the image is that it's kind of like a habitation, like it's a, another place, like a retreat place. Think, to me, I'm imagining like a retreat place in the mountains. And, and here they go, and, and this is a place where Samuel is training prophets, so it's a spiritual place that he's going to, a holy place that he's going to. 
Saul learns that David has traveled north, and he sends people to pursue. And as they get there, instead of taking David, they get caught up in this prophetic frenzy, as Scripture puts it, and they are stopped in their tracks, and they participate in what's going on. Saul hears about this, sends another group. The second group, the same thing happens. Saul hears about it again and sends a third group. The exact same thing happens. And Saul figures, well, if I want it done right, I'm going to do it myself. He goes up there and take a guess what happens. The exact same thing. We pick it up in verse 23, the second part. And it says this, And the Spirit of God came upon him, uh, Saul, The Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Noah in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, is Saul among the prophets? So even Saul is overcome by God's Spirit in this holy place. And even though he intended something for evil, he's not able to do this. Saul strips out of his warrior clothing. Basically, he's sitting around in his underwear or, or basically the, his, his, his undergarment. The Hebrew word for naked there does not necessarily mean bare body. It's most likely that he was naked in the sense that he was out of his uniform and out of his traveling gear and protection and armor. And although Saul participates in a way that the people say, is Saul among the prophets, the narrative shows this disdain for what Saul is doing. In fact, the narrative clearly frowns upon his actions and say what disgraceful, degrading behavior that Saul is participating in. The demise of Saul continues. Chapter 20, David returns to his good friend Jonathan and asks him for help. Jonathan doesn't want to believe his father wants to kill David. In fact, just just 18 verses earlier, he had convinced his father not to. But together, they, they, they realize the situation looks kind of strange, and they come up with a plan to ascertain the truth, and a plan to warn David should he be in danger, and a plan to say, David, you're safe. And so they come up with this plan in the first 23 verses of Samuel chapter 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we pick it up here in verse 24 at the New Moon Festival. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat of the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely, he's not clean. At this point, Saul doesn't think anything of it, thinks everything is normal. Verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me to leave to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And now Saul realizes something is up. 
His son is not telling the truth, and the two have conspired. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Translation. Saul is yelling at his friend his son, in front of guests at a large gathering, and he is using profane language. As you know, since the Bible is to be read with families, the Bible is pretty much a PG book, and so we'll use euphemisms in situations like this, and the phrase, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness, is basically a way of the Bible saying Saul is ticked, and he is yelling profane phrases to his son in front of everybody. Basically, Saul is lighting up his son in front of public, in front of guests, and doing it in a nasty way. Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Saul definitely has spear issues. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Saul's intentions are crystal clear. Jonathan knows his friend is in danger, and now they follow the escape plan for David. We pick it up in the second half of verse 41. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. David is now a fugitive of the state. He has to flee his own family, his people, his country, and his king. And this sets up what we're going to see in the next several chapters of Samuel, an eight to nine year stint where David is living on the run. But as we go back now to take a look at this chapter 18 through 20, not only is this great high drama and, and just this incredible action that's going on in the life of David and Saul and Jonathan, but, but we see something clearly that the narrative tr is trying to point out. A comparison, two comparisons in particular. The comparison of David and his rise to kingly action compared to Saul and his demise and what happens. So we see this comparison between the two, and we also see a comparison between how Jonathan handles the situation and his dad Saul handles the situation. Let's take a look at the first one, David's pure actions and Saul's despicable actions. Going back, thinking about it from the beginning, David, in chapter 18, innocently and purely serves Saul by serving in his army and willing to put himself in perilous situations. By contrast, Saul comes up with plans for David to kill him 
in these impossible missions. David, he feels bad that he's of low class and he's poor and, and feels badly that he would tie the king's daughter to him. On the other hand, Saul ends up just using his daughters to manipulate the situation to get David to be killed. David should have been mad that Saul reneged on his first daughter, but instead feels bad and talks about his lowly situation. Again, a very pure-hearted thing. Saul uses this to take advantage of the fact that he's poor and claims a bride price to try to get the odds of 100 to 1, so David is going to be killed. And in fact, he even uses gossipers to tickle David's ears. You can see the actions of David against Saul. Again, David innocently appeals to, to Jonathan and said, I haven't done anything wrong to your father, have I? Saul, on the other hand, makes a promise not to harm him in the name of the Lord and yet goes against that promise. David, by comparison, goes to Ramah and has this spiritual encounter, spiritual renewal as he's on the run. Saul, on the other hand, goes to Ramah and makes a fool out of himself. David treats Jonathan with love and respect, and Saul treats Jonathan with contempt and profanity and anger. You can see how the Scripture narrative is comparing the two as one king rises, the other one is falling, and it's absolutely clear that with David, the spirit is present, and with Saul, the spirit had departed. And these are the actions that correspond with each. And this trigger, all triggered in chapter 18, verse 7, with jealousy and envy. David has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. I'll bet you've probably heard of the phrase, green with envy. It's thought that the Greeks came up with this phrase, and, and, and this whole idea was there, was there was a green complexion that was associated with sickness, fear, and jealousy. They believed that it came from an overproduction of bile in the stomach that put this green hue over the body. Now, for the Hebrews, the word translated as envy or jealousy is kinah. It actually means a burning, a burning state inside that leads to a red color that's produced in the face. And so whether you like green with envy or red with jealousy or both, what the Scripture is saying here and, and what's coming out is that something changes in us. Our complexion changes. Our, our, our physical, our emotional, our mental, our spiritual well-being changes when envy takes root inside of us. You see this happening with Saul. He is literally sick in the mind and soul, and he is burning with jealousy and anger. Proverbs 27.4 says it this way, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy has a way of affecting our relationships, affecting us in ways that are more harmful over the long run than anger. Do you recall the second sinful act of the Bible? After Adam and Eve sinned by taking the apple and lying before God. You know, the second sinful act that's recorded, it's Cain and Abel. Cain 
kills his brother Abel, murders him in cold blood. Why? You know why. Because of envy and jealousy. Here's what James says about jealousy as we move to the New Testament. James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. We see the effects of jealousy throughout the Scriptures. We see it throughout the history books. And we see the destruction it has. The root of envy, it comes from a lack of self-worth. When we're not thankful for what God has given, when, when we feel like we're less than someone because we don't accomplish the same things, when we don't have a healthy self-image and realize that we're made in God's image and God has called something unique for you to do and for me to do, unique to us, when we're not aware of that and we don't use God's standard in our lives, it's very easy for us to slip to everybody else's standard oh, I had to compare myself to this person or that person, and I'm not as rich as that person, or I'm not as successful as that person, or I'm not as athletic, or I'm not as smart. It's so easy to start this comparison game when we don't have a healthy self-view of ourselves and we see ourselves through the image of God. That's when envy and jealousy creep in the most. Here's what Proverbs 14.30 says. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. I really love how the NLT puts it. A peaceful heart lends to a healthy body. Jealousy is like a cancer in the bones. When one's at peace with themselves, jealousy and envy cannot take root. But if we have low self-esteem, no peace in our heart, we start comparing ourselves and all of a sudden, this jealousy is like a cancer in our own bones. And it's evident as, as the writers of Scripture compare Saul and David's actions. My goodness, you can see how jealousy was the demise of Saul and how it rotted him on the inside. And in the end, while envy hurts other people, it actually hurts you and I the most. When we're envious, it hurts us the most. There's a story of a Grecian fellow, a person from Greece, a man who killed himself through envy. It turns out that his fellow citizens erected a statue of his rival when his rival was successful in public games. This man was so jealous that his competitor had, um, had a statue that every night this Grecian fellow would go out and try to find ways to destroy and knock down the statue. It turns out after repeated efforts, he was successful. He was able to knock the statue off its pedestal. The problem was when he knocked it off, the weight of the statue collapsed upon the Grecian man himself, and he killed himself. Greek author Aeschylus says it this way, no person is a complete failure until he begins disliking people who succeed. Jealousy led the way to Saul's demise, and jealousy, if not checked, 
will lead to our own demise. Let me say that again in summary. Jealousy led the way to Saul's demise, and jealousy, if not checked, will lead to our own demise. So how do we get a handle on it? How do we get a handle on jealousy? 1 Corinthians 13 says it. It says this. Love is patient and kind. And I love this section. Love does not envy or boast. When we let the Spirit of God bring love into our own hearts and our souls, into our own life, jealousy has no place. Ironically, this passage answers as we look to Jonathan. This passage answers how do we deal with jealousy? Look at the opposite of Saul and look at the way Jonathan handled the situation compared to Saul. As we compare these two, Jonathan's reaction was remarkably different. And, and what's so surprising is Jonathan had way more reason to be jealous than Saul did. You see, Jonathan and David were much closer in age, anywhere from maybe 10 to 20 years apart. Saul was 40 years older than David. No reason for him to be jealous, even just from that standpoint. Jonathan was heir to the throne, and he is actually the one who would be displaced by the rise of David, not Saul. Jonathan's sister was married to David, and so any sort of possible sibling rivalry here, David wouldn't know about. Jonathan had more to fear there, and because Jonathan was younger, there would be a lot more military expectation on Jonathan, not on Saul. He's an old man. The military exploits would have been more on Jonathan and a comparison between David and Jonathan more so than David and Saul. Jonathan was more likely to, to be displaced by David. He had more reasons to be jealous. But it's clear that Jonathan stayed pure in heart. And how did he do that? Through love. It's because Jonathan loved David. And we can see why these three chapters spend so much time on this relationship and, and talking so much about covenants made in love. Mark 12 says it this way, and these are Jesus' words, starting in verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. This is the selfless love that Jonathan has, and it's the reason he's not jealous like his father. The difference is love. And that's why these chapters spend so much time talking about this relationship, this bond, this friendship, this love between Jonathan and David because the message of the Scriptures is purely and simply love God and love others the way you would love yourself. Love conquers over jealousy. When love rules our heart, when the Spirit of God takes over and rules our soul, there is no place for jealousy. There's no place for envy. There's no place for deceit. And because of love, Jonathan, the, most, the second most important person in the kingdom of Israel, is able to help a poor shepherd boy 
by giving him the tools of a warrior. His loving action leads to a person who would be the greatest king in Israel's history and ultimately from the line of David, we read later, the Messiah comes. This act of love is something that God's Spirit is able to use to accomplish His purposes hundreds and thousands of years later. Jonathan may not have inherited the kingdom of Israel as a ruler, but I believe he inherited the kingdom of God. Henry, Henrietta Mears is quoted by saying this, the man who keeps busy helping the man below him won't have time to envy the man above him. And there may not be anybody above him anyway. So the lessons for today. Don't let anything, especially jealousy, lead to your demise. Stay pure in heart. And if you find yourself green with envy or red with jealousy, remember that to love yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself is the way to get through those feelings, and to let the Spirit of God reign in you deeply. Amen. Let's pray. God, let the Spirit of peace rule in our heart and mind. And as we look, God, we confess that our actions probably at times look a lot more like Saul than they do David and Jonathan. That at times we let envy rule and jealousy and covetousness, God, forgive us for that. Help us to realize that, Lord, in ourselves and help us not, not, not to turn to our own will and to our own power, but to let your Spirit reign inside of us so that we might act more loving like David, more loving like Jonathan. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.